Welcome back to Sri Mala Devi's assembly and uh, maybe some new people this week, including Gregory Heavenly Donkey Wonder Wheel. Welcome. I mentioned uh, Gregory last time because he's a uh, great devotee of the Shimala Devi Sutra and a translator of the Sutra. And um, so he might chime in at various points when, uh, if we need any, um, any uh, pointers or new translations. Uh, we're using Diana Paul's translation here. Thank you, Kokio. Your, your words are very kind, and I'm going to try to keep my mouth uh, shut most of the time. <laughs> and if you, Gregory, as I mentioned, has a, um, his translation is on the web, on his blog in parts, and he also has it all together as one piece. I don't know if you, if people want that, uh, want to read your translation on their computers. We have this, um, Google Drive folder. I don't know if how you'd feel about putting it in there. Uh, you know, I saw I saw that folder, and it would be fine if you put the PDF version up there. Okay, if anyone wants to look, especially your your introduction to the sutra is really nice. It has nice. a lot of background. Oops, getting that. There's also a, there's also a plethora of uh, footnotes. I'm still yeah, working. I'm, I'm still working on the footnotes, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't mind. It's just as long as the people here uh, hold it. Um, uh, as a uh, it's a work in progress uh, a draft, so uh, don't uh, please use it for your personal use and not for uh, passing it out into the world yet. Sounds good. Yes, thank you for making that available. Uh, so last um, week we talked about the other related sutras with and the. The period in which this sutra emerged and, um, and the introduction where, uh, Srimala Devi is, is very, um, inspired by hearing about the Buddha. The Buddha comes and she vows to always receive the Buddha's teachings and so on. And then Shakyamuni Buddha predicts Queen Srimala's Buddhahood and that she'll have a pure land and uh, be named um, Samantha Prabha, universal light Buddha in the future. No small matter to receive such a prediction from Shakyamuni Buddha. And, uh, and that's where we left off. So, um, Kokyo, could I make one comment about what you just said? You know, that, that, that block of, uh, from last week. Sure. Since this is a Zen group, um, I think it's, uh, from my perspective, it's really important to notice that opened up her letter and read what her parents had told her of the Buddha Dharma. She had a sudden awakening, just like Wei Nang having a sudden awakening hearing the Diamond Sutra. So I think that's really important for us uh, Zen people to realize that 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 giving birth to a rare mind is a very uh, poetic way of saying she had a sudden she had awakening. So that's an important point I, I want to point out in terms of our Zen connection to Queen Trimala. Good. 
Great. Yeah. Just, just reading a little bit in a letter, she maybe had a, had a strong connection to the Dharma already. And that was enough to push her over the edge to this awakening. Yes. Very much like the six ancestors in Zen in the, hearing the Diamond Sutra in the marketplace and awakening. So um, then one might um, imagine that if somebody receives a prediction of Buddhahood and Buddha kind of laid out how this will kind of unfold over, over many lifetimes, one might then just kind of celebrate and, and feel like, um, well, then I'll just, great, it's coming, so I can just sit back and relax and wait for my Buddhahood to arrive. But instead of that, Queen Shimala immediately made all these bodhisattva vows. Uh, so she, her attitude was more like, wow, this is how wonderful that I will be a Buddha able to benefit many beings um, in the future. So let's get to work right away and start um, making these vows that will make this process possible. The Buddha knew that she would do this. And uh, so here are, um, in chapter two, are her 10 ordination vows, pranidhana, these, um, these, they're calling here like ordination vows, but she's like ordaining herself, really. She's just spontaneously um, making these vows on the spot. It's how she wants to practice the bodhisattva way. Everyone can make their own um, bodhisattva vows or, you know, borrow others. She, I think this is unique to the sutra, the vows that she makes on the spot. And uh, one nice point that I, I really appreciated this point that um, Prince Shotoku makes in his commentary uh, is that these 10 vows are divided into what we call in Zen, the three pure precepts, three collective pure precepts, and uh and this is something that I've over the years been kind of researching a little bit, like where these three pure precepts came from in our Soto Zen tradition and uh the kind of history of how those evolved um to be our ordination vows and uh along with the ten precepts. Uh, I think last night after the full moon, I mentioned that these 10 major bodhisattva precepts come from Brahmajala Sutra, a Buddha nature precept sutra. And uh, I think the first place where these three pure precepts appear in the exact form that Dogen uses them in the same, same Chinese characters, there's other slight variations, but this form is from another um, kind of Sister Sutra to the Brahmajala Sutra called the Bodhisattva Jewel Necklace Sutra. Both of those Bodhisattva Precepts Sutras were probably um, composed in China, scholars tell us, but way back and not so long before the time of Prince Shotoku. So um, this, I was, I was as a kind of like, um, you know, researcher of these three pure precepts i was i was excited to see that in this commentary attributed to prince shotoku it's the um, exact chinese characters as three pure precepts as um this bodhisattva dual necklace sutra 
and identical to Dogen's Kyoju Kaimon, Dogen's essay on teaching and conferring the precepts. So um, those three pure precepts, they're a little bit different form in uh, at Austin Zen Center, but the first one is literally like, in Japanese we say, Shoritsu Gikai, which is like, could translate it as embracing and sustaining standards of conduct precept. That's how I like to translate it. Uh, Ritsu is, is a Japanese, Chinese, Chinese Japanese for Vinaya. So standards, you can maybe translate it as, um, like discipline and gi is like conduct or manners. Uh, my teacher, Tenshin Roshi, um, kind of creatively, but, but, you know, I think accurately likes to translate these days this Shoritsu Gikai as embracing and sustaining forms and ceremonies. Maybe a little unusual way to translate, but, um, uh, Ritsugi could be like forms and ceremonies, standards of conduct. And that's the, usually considered the precepts of, um, um, refraining from various unwholesome conduct. The first pure precept called embracing and sustaining standards of conduct. And, and in the jewel necklace sutra, the Buddha defines that as the 10 major bodhisattva precepts that we recite after the three pure precepts. The second um, pure precept is Shouzenbokai, uh, um, embracing and sustaining uh, wholesome actions, wholesome dharmas, really, precept. We could say embracing and sustaining good qualities. And that sometimes we translate it as embracing and sustaining all good is the second pure precept. It's like the positive side. We embrace the standards of conduct, refraining from harm, and we embrace and sustain all good actions. And then the third is um, shujokai, embracing and sustaining living beings precept. And I think kind of um, nicely, I think this this is a nice way of putting these VPO precepts. They all begin with this character that means embrace and sustain. And that's how um, in Prince Shotoku's commentary, he uses that same translation that Dogen Zengi uses um, in his version of three pure precepts. It was, you know, passed along to China and Japan. Chen Tai school used these precepts also. If you, if, if you might know that the three per, pure precepts are the Mahayana edit of verse 183 in the Dhammapada. That's, that's the, uh, the source of it. Yeah, it's, it's closely related to the Dhammapada's refrain from all evil or harm, do all good and purify the mind. So sometimes in, in American Zen, they use that version. But, um, so this is related to those, but kind of a sort of different take on it. Also, Asanga, I think probably in India, the main source of this wording of the three pure precepts is Asanga's Bodhisattva Bhumi, where he comments on each of the three in great detail. So anyway, um, uh, the one who's 
called Prince Shotoku that this commentary is attributed to. He says these 10 ordination vows of Sri Devi fit into these three pure precepts. So the first five are the precept of embracing and sustaining standards of conduct. And, uh, and they could, it makes a lot of sense. I think the way he describes this. So these first five are, um, I will not transgress the discipline I have received. I think we could understand that to mean any precepts I've received up to this point. Um, I will, I'm going to keep them all wholeheartedly. And then the second one is, I will have no disrespect toward venerable elders. You could understand that to mean um, her Dharma teachers, but also her parents and grandparents and so on. Uh, the third is, I will not hate living beings. The fourth is, I will not be jealous of others with regard to either their physical appearance or their possessions. And the fifth is, I will not be stingy, although I have little sustenance. Even if in some lifetime I have little sustenance. He was a queen in this lifetime, so she probably had plenty, but she was happy to share it. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's hard to It's probably me, but I'm experiencing a strong echo. It may be my system. As your your voice is going It's probably me then. Probably me then. Probably me then. Why are you trying to Jacob, if you if you mute and maybe turn down your volume. So now I'm not getting the echo. How how is it for other people? Okay. So I think it's it's something on your system, I think, Jacob. Maybe you can if separate the mic and the speakers or something. Maybe turn down the volume. So um so these first five vows of Shimala Devi uh Looks like, um, looks like, uh, they also are working with the major clashes, you know, like, um, uh, afflictions of mind, like, um, unwholesome mind states that are sometimes listed, sometimes listed as five, greed, hate, and illusion, pride, and jealousy. That's one list of five major clashes. And I think this list nicely fits into this. She's, she's trying to say, I want to really let go of these self-centered mind states. So um, the discipline I received, I think, just sums up all her precepts. But starting with number two, um, I think disrespect toward venerable elders could be like, I don't want to be proud and put myself above the venerable elders. And then hate is hate living beings is hate. Jealous of others. Stingy is like greed. And um, uh, those are the those are the four. Um, without without delusion, which is kind of covering the rest of her vows, are really wanting to realize Buddha's way completely. So um, this is one version of a vow we could. I think all of her vows are um, are just working with self centered. Um, Grasping, you know, I'm not really this separate self. And, uh, 
And I vow to like make my conduct in accord with the reality of no separate self. So I think we could hear all these Bodhisattva vows as, um, as that, that's what they're about. They're not only about letting go of the illusion of separate self through the conduct of, um, that the conduct that kind of reifies the separate self, but they're also often benefiting others greatly in the, in the process. But these especially shoritsugikai, embracing and sustaining standards of conduct, I think are really about letting go of self-centeredness for, for its own sake. And that's these five. Then, um, the next, uh, the next four, six, seven, eight, nine, according to Prince Shotoku, are, um, are elements of the third pure precept, embracing and sustaining living beings. Uh, they are, um, I will not accumulate property for my own benefit. Whatever I receive will be used to assist living beings who are poor and suffering. And especially as a queen of her region, Maybe she was actually really able to, to do that. And many, many politicians, <laughs> as we know these days, accumulate a lot for themselves. And, um, but she could do that maybe if she wanted, but she thought, I have plenty to share. I'm, I'm a bodhisattva destined for Buddhahood. And this is going to be my practice a bit of, um, embracing and sustaining living beings. And number uh, seven is I will practice the four all-embracing acts, which are giving, kind speech, benefiting others, and cooperation toward leading all beings to virtuous deeds. It's put here. Uh, as you may know, Dogen Zenji has a whole essay called Shobogenzo Shishobo. Yeah. The Bodhisattva's four um, methods of guidance. Literally, we could say the Bodhisattva's four ways of embracing and sustaining. It's the same show as this, as the show in its precepts, coincidentally. Uh, so, um, it's a, it's a classic Indian Bodhisattva vow practice is these four generosity, kind speech, uh, beneficial action and cooperation. And sometimes this fourth one, cooperation in commentaries, they say what that means, uh, in the, in the old Indian version is, um, to, um, uh, like align our conduct with our speech, kind of like what we say, like kind of practice what you preach. Is we might say in modern times. Um, uh, I think in some of the Dogen fascicles it says identity action, which I think works nicely if we understand it in this old Indian way. Identity in the old way was like my my conduct is is identical with my with what I recommend to others. So kind of being true to one's word, not being sort of um, duplicitous. Uh, so let's see. Tracy, uh, yeah, you have a question about so far about this? 
it, it was more an initial reaction. And I see now we're going through them all uh, with, with some detail, but having just zipped through them, glancing through them, it's like, there's, it's so comprehensive. She, she, within one number, she includes a lot. Yeah. yeah. Actions, very particular, very specific ones. Uh, that, that, well, she doesn't miss anything, really. Is <laughs> a, is a first reaction. But this last, well, we're about to come to it. But when she refers to, and they refer to the Mahayana specifically, you know, they're addressing an audience at the time who were reading this to be saying something by pointing that out or highlighting that, that in specifically in the 10th one, as I'm looking at it now, that, um, those who forget the Mahayana forget the Dharma. I'm sorry. Those who forget the Mahayana forget. <laughs> I don't have my glasses. Sorry. Those who forget the Mahayana forget the perfections. I'm sorry. Well, so by, by here, by the Mahayana, what they're saying is we're, we're not forgetting our vow that we're doing this on behalf of all of us. Yes. That is, Let's see one way to look at it. And also all those practices of giving and patience. Uh, and- even meditation and so on. Mm-hmm. But let's wait till we get to this one to pull it out more. And we won't be able to get to all of this, but I actually really appreciated these vows. They're, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big part of the first half of the sutra here. And I think it's nice that they can inspire us. We might think, well, I wouldn't maybe put my vows exactly like she does, but they inspire me. Uh, so the, uh, um, in this seventh one, these four all-embracing actions, uh, I've had to practice them, um, not for myself, but for others, she says. And I accept all living beings without lust, without satiation, without prejudice. Again, we could say without greed, hate, and delusion. I think is what that means. And then the eighth is uh, when I see living beings who are lonely, imprisoned, ill, and afflicted by various misfortunes and hardships, I will never forsake them even for a moment. For I must bring them peace. Through my good deeds, I will bring them benefits and liberate them from their pain. Only then will I leave them if they're okay with it. So um, just, yeah. Uh, people especially who are suffering in all these particular kinds of ways, uh, I'm in a, I'm devoted to, to them. Good, good for a queen of a country or a queen of a region to, uh, have this kind of, wow. Maybe, maybe, um, Queen Fimala's vows could be sent around to all world leaders. And maybe in old India, they were maybe known by by people like, um, uh, who's that great, uh, Indian Dharma king, um, who kind of like turned a lot of India into, towards Buddha Dharma. Um, Ashoka. Ashoka, yeah, King Ashoka. And there were, there were others too. Uh, maybe it's meant to inspire the leaders, Ashoka. So, um, uh, the ninth, when I see those who hunt or domesticate animals, slaughter or commit such offenses against the precepts, I will never forsake them. 
When I obtain this power to teach all beings, I will restrain those who should be restrained and assist those who should be assisted wherever I see living beings. Why? Because by restraining and assisting them, one causes the eternal continuation of the Dharma. And if it continues eternally, gods and humans will flourish and evil destinies at the lower realms of hell and hungry ghosts and so on will diminish in number. And the wheel of Dharma turned by the Tathagata will again be turned. Because I see these benefits, I will save and never quit teaching living beings. I thought this was kind of interesting because it's saying, is it's kind of mentioning um, particular like butchers, <laughs> and uh, which is not quite right livelihood. But instead of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to like, you know, um, I'm going to like try to stay away from them actually, because like, they're just like not on the Dharma path. Instead, I'm not going to abandon those that are like causing this harm to living beings. And what does it mean to not abandon them? It sounds like I'll find ways to <laughs> restrain them. Maybe means to, to just let them know, excuse me, you know, as you're about to um, slice this cow's head off. Um, I, how do you feel about that? You know, can you just stop a minute and, and, uh, and, um, check with yourself? Um, is that, is that, do you feel okay about this? And if they really maybe respect Shimala Devi, she might, they might say, oh, I, I, we love our queen, Shimala Devi, and she's just asking me how I feel. She's not telling me to do anything. When I check in with how I feel, actually don't feel that great about it and uh um but but i need to because this is my livelihood and you should say well you could you could start a kale farm (laughs) instead uh maybe something like this and i just know too that it's like you know Maybe it's just coincidence, but she's talking about like not harming animals. And, um, you don't find that that often in, um, in the Buddhist sutras. But, um, one thing that I've noticed in my kind of like perusing sutras and see, you know, comparing and, and, uh, contrasting and so on. One thing that I found is that, um, a lot of sutras that we could call Buddha nature sutras. Like the, um, Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra, um, Angulimalaya Sutra, and, um, and, uh, Sharangama Sutra. A lot of the t- sutras that teach Tathagata Garbha or Buddha nature, they also mention, um, taking care of animals and not eating animals in particular. And they don't mention it in that many other sutras. So I don't think that it's coincidence that the, that the scriptures of the Buddha that are teaching um, being careful how we treat animals happen to be emphasizing Buddha nature. I think that's a really cool correlation because Buddha nature is the teaching that all living beings, all sentient beings, including animals, equally share this Buddha nature. Therefore, they all have the potential to be Buddhas. It's like, it's like our sacred, um, you know, core heart of our being is this Buddha nature. And uh, since all beings have that, we should treat that as like 
sacred reality and don't harm anyone who could in some future lifetime be a Buddha and teach us the way, for example, and help many beings. So um, that's just a little footnote about um, this kind of like conduct around animals seems to be um, particularly emphasized in sutras that are particularly emphasizing Buddha nature. And this is maybe the place that it appears, sort of, in the sutra. Uh, so that's the um, six, seven, eight, nine are are the precept of embracing and sustaining living beings through these modes of conduct. Then the tenth um, is uh, what Prince Shotoku calls embracing and sustaining uh, all good. Or, uh, good qualities, you know, it's wholesome dharmas, kushala dharma. And we could understand that as wholesome qualities, like kindness and compassion. We could also understand it as good dharma, embracing and sustaining dharma, which kind of comes in here too. Um, and this, this vow of Queen Shimala is, I accept the true dharma, never forgetting it. Uh, and this acceptance of dharma is a major theme running through this sutra. There's a whole chapter coming up on accepting the dharma. And uh, um, again, it happens to be the same Sino-Japanese character, sho, that means embrace and sustain. Sho or setsu, you can pronounce it. Uh, and then uh, combined with the character for receive, shoju is like embrace, sustain, and receive. And it's often translated as accept. But could translate it as um, I, um, my vow is to embrace and sustain the Dharma and receive the Dharma. Uh, and what is the true Dharma here? Um, it's not um, fully brought out in all its magnificent yet, but um, we could say many things about the true Dharma, emptiness, uh, and in, in in this sutra we could say it's Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha or Buddha nature, and that I'm going to embrace my true nature uh, as the true Dharma, one interpretation, and not forget it. Not forget my true nature. Why? Because those who forget the Dharma forget the Mahayana. So, uh, Tracy brought this up. Those who forget the Mahayana forget the perfections, the paramitas, the six transcendent bodhisattva practices. Uh, those who forget the great vehicle, the Mahayana, the bodhisattva vehicle, we could say, forget these bodhisattva practices. And um, so Tracy mentioned one way of looking at that. I think we could also see it as it's kind of like trademark teaching of the great vehicle, the Mahayana Bodhisattva vehicle. You could say you could even summarize the whole Mahayana, I think, quite fairly. You could summarize it as these six parameters. You could summarize it in other ways, too, but I think it's pretty good it's it's 
I think most people probably know these six paramitas. It's, it's a classic teaching. And, and, um, I've heard many teachers say that if you want to practice the Mahayana Bodhisattva path to complete perfect awakening of Buddhahood, all you need actually is these six paramitas. You don't need any other practices. They're, they include all necessary practices. It's pretty good. Uh, so, and they're listed later in the sutra here. Taught a little bit in no more detail. So we'll wait till we get to them. Those who forget the perfections do not aspire toward the Mahayana. If the Bodhisattvas are not committed to Mahayana, the Bodhisattva, a great vehicle, they cannot have the aspiration to accept the true Dharma. Acting according to their pleasure, they will not be able to transcend the level of common people. So a strong statement about um, accepting or embracing and sustaining this true Dharma, Mahayana Dharma, is essential and important point. It's that's another like heart of the Mahayana, according to Sri Maladevi. Um, and she goes on, because I have seen in this way the immeasurable great errors of humans and have seen the immeasurable merits of the Bodhisattvas, those great beings, the Mahasattvas, who will accept the true Dharma, I will accept these great vows, Bodhisattva vows. And then she says to the Buddha, you, Lord of Dharma, Buddha, are my witness in these vows. Um, thank you for letting me make these vows before you. That's we have that tradition in Zen and elsewhere. Is we can make vows alone, but we can also make them in front of our teachers and our sangha. And it's powerful to make vows in public <laughs> in this way. And maybe Shivala Devi's. Um, whole retinue is also there witnessing her vows and awestruck by them. And um, maybe I might mention here too, it comes up throughout the sutra and throughout many Mahayana sutras, especially Mahayana sutras, this term merit and uh, all the merit accumulated from all these amazing practices generates all this merit. So, um, it's um, one of those really kind of central Mahayana teachings that Zen kind of maybe de-emphasizes this issue of merit. Ever since the time of Bodhidharma, who when asked by the emperor, how much merit do I get from building all these temples? Bodhidharma said, uh, no merit. So, so then maybe after that time, Zen people are like, yeah, let's just forget about this issue of merit. But, uh, you know, Bodhidharma said that in this context of like this country of China that was like totally devoted to generating merit. And it's just, I think it's good to know about this as a, as a central Mahayana. It's, it's there in the pre-Mahayana teachings, but not so much. In the Mahayana, it's sometimes said that, um, just like the six paramitas are a kind of all-inclusive path to complete Buddhahood, it's also sometimes said that to be a fully awakened Buddha, what that means, 
what a what a uh, fully awakened Buddha means is the complete um, culmination of gathering all merit that's possible to gather, and the complete culmination of gathering all wisdom that's possible. So the accumulation, or maybe that word's a little we don't like so much. Maybe say gathering. Gathering of merit, complete gathering of merit and complete gathering of wisdom together make a Buddha. And the merit, um, particularly, um, results in the form bodies of Buddhas, called the Rupakayas, the, which are the Sambhogakaya and the Nirmanakaya, these that appear to living beings. Those appearance bodies are created by merit and the Dharma body, the Dharmakaya of the Buddha, is the result of the complete gathering of wisdom, understanding emptiness and Buddha nature. Uh, so again, that's like, and all, and you could match these up with the all-inclusive path of these six paramitas, which are briefly giving, virtue, patience, diligence, presence, and wisdom. So the first five of those are generating merit. Um, and the sixth, Prajnaparamita, is generating and gathering complete understanding of realization of true nature of reality, like emptiness. But we don't just have Prajnaparamita, we also have these merit-gathering practices like giving and virtue and patience. Um, so what is this, what's this deal with merit? You know, at the end of all our events, we dedicate the merit. We don't talk about it so much. So this is just a chance to, um, bring up this issue. And, um, one way I like to think of merit and it's, you know, I haven't seen it defined exactly this way in, um, in traditional texts, but I'm t- in a kind of experiential, practical way, one way that you could try on this idea that um, uh, first of all, what is traditionally said is merit is just the result of any wholesome actions, any good actions that are letting go of, of self-centeredness and benefiting others result in merit. But the part that I, that the, the kind of creative way of talking about this, I like to think of it as um, what is the result of these positive actions? It's a kind of like joyful open-heartedness. It's when we practice giving, for example, the result is merit. But what what is this practically for for me when I practice giving? What is the result? Experientially, I feel good. I feel like just a little more open-hearted, light-hearted, a little more joyful when I, especially when I really just wholeheartedly give without holding anything back. Same thing with like, you know, not harming someone like second parameter. Uh, how do I feel if I like, feel like I'm going to say something kind of nasty and decide not to? I feel good. I feel, and my heart is, uh, open heartedness, I think is a nice way to, to say it. It's a kind of emotional, emotional result. Whereas, um, wisdom, is not so emotional. We need the wisdom of emptiness, but it's like, it's like cutting through like Manjushri's sword and like 
cuts through appearances and directly sees none of this is really what we think it is. It's like, um, it maybe doesn't have that much like heart necessarily in just pure slicing wisdom like that. So I think this is one way to understand this. We need this, this direct cutting wisdom that realizes emptiness directly. But we also need this open heartedness. We need to, we need to feel joyful. The first bodhisattva stage on the, on the grand bodhisattva path is called extreme joy. Pramudita. So that, but when a bodhisattva first really enters fully their bodhisattva path, they are extremely joyful about this. Why? You could say because they've been generating a lot of merit, a lot of giving, a lot of patience. When people get angry at them, they don't react. A lot of diligence and even meditation, you could say, dhyana paramita, um, could fit into this generating of joyful, positive, um, open-heartedness. So it's definitely the result of virtuous activity. All would agree that's a definition of merit. But um, I like to think of it as like that result is an open-heartedness. So we need this emotional open-heartedness combined with none of it is really the way we think it is. That combination, the the culmination of that combination is called a Buddha. Do you follow that? Yeah. I think it's a nice, it doesn't get brought up in Zen very much, this generation and accumulation of merit. Any, any, you know, wholesome action. Just, you know, offering a flower to the Buddha is, is, um, offering incense and light to the Buddha, which is why that would be a kind of traditional understanding why we keep doing that every morning and evening. We sit zazen and then we dedicate. We, you could say, and I think fits nicely too with this idea of generating merit. When we accumulate some merit, meaning, you could say, meaning open-heartedness, meaning kind of joyful, light open-heartedness, we feel good and we can just enjoy that feeling, but we can also share it. We can dedicate it, means like give it to others, you know, intend to share it with others. Uh, yes, donkey song. Uh-huh. Hey, I, I think in the in this paragraph, it says she says I have seen the immeasurable merits of the bodhisattvas, mm. and then at, at the bottom of the page, at, to the top of the next page, living beings' virtuous deeds are superficial. So I think what the point here is the, the two words immeasurable and inconceivable are peppered all throughout this sutra and are very important words because what they're key words to point to non-dual. The non-dual virtuous merits are the immeasurable ones. And the ones that uh, Emperor Wu were, was uh, talking about was, was measurable. He was trying to measure the merits. He wasn't fo- seeing the immeasurable merits. And that's what Bodhidharma was trying to shift his perspective on, saying not those measurable merits no you're not that you're not really getting much out of that and uh, again Wayneng uh, does a does a thing on a riff on this as well pointing out that 
Bodhidharma was, was pointing out the non-dual aspect of merits, which I take this sutra to be pointing out as well with the term immeasurable. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, we could also say that's when the first five paramitas get combined with the six. When, um, and which is literally actually the meaning of paramita. I mean, there's the practice of generosity, um, that we can, we can practice giving or generosity. Strictly speaking, just any old giving is not really dana paramita, strictly speaking. Paramita means it's immeasurable. It's, it's gone beyond the um, dualistic kind of giving where I'm going to give something good to you and maybe you're going to give something good back to me. That's, that's, an, that's what Emperor Wu's kind of measurable merit. But dana paramita would be like, um, a natural, uncontrived giving where there's not even the thought of like, you're over there and I'm over here, but they're still giving. Yes. So, um, uh, immeasurable, inconceivable, uh, non-dual merit making. Yeah. Thanks for that. Let's see, Rich. Hi. I had a question about just what you were saying there. Um, I, I, personally, I sometimes think about Buddha nature as the idea that if I'm giving something, like a, say it flowers on the altar, I'm also noticing that this gift that I give is impermanent and that it is changing and that it is, doesn't have, it's empty, right? And then I noticed that this gift, right? But I'm also noticing myself having the same qualities. And it's all, it's like, what am I giving and what is being given? It's really like this whole dynamic functioning. It's like everything is, 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 is sort of engaged in a process of exchange almost, you know, and that's sort of like, to me, that's how I sort of think about Buddha nature. It's like this, it's not about a discrete act of giving, say, or a, a discrete act. It's like an exchange of merit of between beings, right? Is, is that we, correct? We can't get a hold of any of it either because it is passing so quickly. Right. It's so it's being exchanged. And there's no, there's nothing to grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's impermanent. It's all impermanent, like you're saying. And also the giver, the receiver and the gift are all interdependent, which is also implied in their impermanence. But because they're interdependent, you can't actually have, um, like you wouldn't be there at the Zen center, um, to give the flowers if there weren't flowers to give. And, right. um, and the flowers wouldn't be there if you weren't there. And the act of placing them on the altar and giving them to the Buddha wouldn't be possible without you and the flowers. So, um, in addition to it all being impermanent, as you mentioned, it's also, I would say it's slightly different dharma to say that all of this is interdependent. And because it's interdependent, give a receiver and gifter interdependent. None of them actually exists independently on their own, which is like we say in our meal chant right after, I guess after we open the bowls, um, when we're about to receive this food in Oriyoki eating, we say, may all beings realize the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. 
Right. That's this teaching. Right. So, but I was just kind of hearing what, how you're saying the first five paramitas meet up with the sixth paramita. At that point, the, uh, it's sort of just the, the heart opening qualities are combined with this, this sort of ultimate perspective. Yeah. 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 I like thinking of it this way. It's maybe not exactly an orthodox way, but, but yeah, the, the open heartedness along with like, I don't even know who I am. But right. I, but I actually feel, I feel good not knowing who I am. And that right. kind of like, because like, uh, bodhisattvas, <laughs> bodhisattvas have to feel good. That <laughs> kind of sustains them. It's um, sustaining, yeah. But yeah. if they feel good and they don't realize the emptiness, their feeling good will eventually wear off and they'll get like burnt out. But if they like, you're good and like, and I don't even know what all, what's going on here anyway, and I'm just happy to keep doing whatever. And right, um, oh, would you like some flour? Okay, here, here's the flour. And we're just right. kind of responding, and by like giving without even noticing maybe that they're giving, they become even more joyful, and um, and maybe right. that right. even helps them. Another another thing about this relationship between um, joyful open-heartedness and realizing emptiness. You know, the, the union of those is that, is that they, they, um, they help each other. Like we're, say we're really, we're really meditating very, very closely and concentratedly on how, um, you know, uh, I'm not really here. Uh, there's nobody here in addition to this body and thoughts happening. I'm really kind of trying to focus on this in this almost clinical, dissecting kind of way, maybe in Zazen. And, uh, but it could be kind of cold and like dissection. And, but if we're doing it with this warm hearted, like, yeah, and I'm just happy to keep meditating on this point forever because <laughs> it's all good. You know, then we like, it helps fuel the, med- the meditation emptiness. And likewise, the meditation of emptiness can help. I think naturally it does open our heart too. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just so beautiful, right? Yeah. It's just so beautiful. Like if this whole thing that's transpiring is so beautiful, it's, and yet it's empty. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. So these paramitas are really wonderful because they're all, they can all be done as ordinary practices, just giving and patience and so on, but they can also be done infused with prajnaparamita that makes them like, then we'd say it's transcendent giving when there's the realization of the emptiness of giver, receiver, and gift. And the same would hold true of patience is usually a practice in the face of someone who's angry. So that I'm the one practicing patience in the face of this angry face in front of me and in the practice of it. All three of those are interdependent. So there isn't really an angry one apart from me. And there's not a patient one apart from the angry one. It's therefore, it's all of it is empty of any graspable, substantial, fixed nature. Wow. Thank you. That was great. (laughs) So, Shimala makes these inspiring 10 vows that, as Prince Shotoku says, are just another version of the three pure precepts. Next time we recite in the full moon ceremony or whatever, these three pure precepts, 
you can you can think of Queen Shimala's um, ten Bodhisattva vows, or or the ten Bodhisattva vows that we recite: not killing, taking what's not given, and so on. Uh, infinite ways to practice these three pure precepts, and uh, the Buddha praises this, and so on. Then Shimala Devi goes on to make three more vows, as if it wasn't enough. And uh, three great vows. Um, in the presence of the Buddha, she says, By the power of my earnest aspiration, may I bring peace to innumerable and unlimited living beings. By my virtuous deeds throughout all rebirths, may I attain the wisdom of the true Dharma. This is the first great vow. The second is having attained the wisdom of true dharma, which was the first vow, right? To attain the wisdom of the true dharma was part of it. Uh, in other words, to realize true dharma. As I said earlier, we could say realize our true nature, realize emptiness. Um, having attained the wisdom of the true dharma from my first vow, for the sake of living beings, may I explain the dharma without wearying. This is the second vow. So, Having realized the Dharma, now I want to help everybody else realize it too. I'm going to like talk about it in whatever way I can, which maybe even like, hi, how are you doing? Who are you? I'm, I'm your queen, Shimala Devi. I just wanted to like say, I really enjoy just seeing you walking down the street today. Oh, thanks. And they, they feel good. I, I don't know, is that, that's not maybe the full exposition of the true Dharma, but Dharma is starting to come through there just in her ordinary conversation. And then the, uh, the third vow is, um, in accepting the true Dharma that I've realized and I'm teaching. Now I'm re, I'm accepting it or embracing and sustaining it. May I abandon body, life, and wealth and uphold the true dharma. This is the third vow. Um, and, uh, and then the Buddha says, with reference to these three vows, just as all forms are contained in space, so likewise the Bodhisattva's vows, as numerous as sands of the Ganges River, are all contained in these three great vows. These are true and extensive. So um, a lot of all-inclusiveness <laughs> happens in these Mahayana teachings. These three vows cover everything. <laughs> Another version of covering everything. But uh, I think they, they're similar to our four Bodhisattva vows in the Zen tradition, right? Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. is a lot like I vow to, um, you know, offer this dharma to beings because that's what's really going to save them actually and delusions are inexhaustible i've had and then that was kind of covered in the maybe the the previous 10 dharma gates are boundless i've had to enter them learn all dharma it's kind of is this is this first vow here i've had to um attain the wisdom of true dharma and um all of this is in the name of being buddha Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. So many variations on these Bodhisattva vows. And uh, abandoned body, life, and wealth is, is kind of intense. Um, 
uh, we could say, um, maybe in, in another way of saying abandon would be like, let go of, let go of my attachment to this body. And maybe even more deeply, let go of my identification with this body as myself. That would be one way to abandon body. It doesn't mean we stop taking care of our body, but to continue to, to, um, live in a healthy way, to promote this body, so we can live as long as possible for bodhisattvas, as bodhisattvas and, um, help others. Um, but I think we could understand it as I let go of of any self-centered grasping of this body as myself and, and taking care of um, me above all others, which is a natural human tendency. Um, she's destined to be a Buddha, so she's really going for it here. Body, life um, sound almost the same, but then I think Prince Shotoku says, maybe we could see like um, um Giving the body could not necessarily mean, um, like dying, but it could be just lending a helping hand in a bodily way. Giving, giving my body is like, you need help, um, um, you know, carrying this heavy load or something. Let me help you carry it across the street or further. You could hear that as abandoning the body that was just like comfortably walking, not carrying anything and going in the other direction. I mean, like I'm willing to walk a little bit with you and help carry your load. Maybe we could hear that as kind of an easy way maybe to think of abandoning or letting go of what I'm doing with my body right now and abandon life. I mean, there are these stories of Buddha's, Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha in previous lifetimes feeding his body to a hungry tigress and so on on the Bodhisattva path. So um, these vows can be taken quite far, but I think the spirit of them, we can open to the spirit of them. Uh, and uh, wealth might just be like, well, if somebody really needs something and I have something in my pocket to give them right here and now, maybe I can help out. Um, whatever we're, whatever we're grasping in a self-centered way is, is in a way holding back, holding us back on the path. And there's no degree to which these practices are possible. So they might sound, they do sound to me like very exalted vows, like hard to practice. Um, it's very humbling for me to read Sri Mala Devi's vows, but, um, I'm inspired by them. Uh, I'd like to, you know, open to little bit more, you know, as each day, um, notice how I'm maybe not quite willing to practice like Srimala Devi, but I, I like to go in that direction. That's inspiration. Rather than like, like, ah, it's totally like out of my league. You know, for, this is not talking to me. Forget this is way, way too much. It's a, you know, it's a direction. And I think maybe these sutras, especially these Mahayana sutras, they're so vast and extensive, inconceivable. And, and uh, the, the conduct and the realization of bodhisattvas. So they just, just in case somebody starts catching up to the, the level of Shimala Devi, they're like, yeah, here's where we can go even further.
So um, that's the ten vows and the three vows. Um, any uh, uh, other comments on these before we move on to the next chapter? Let's keep going. Because time is limited in this impermanent life. The next chapter four, acceptance of the true Dharma. Again, here's this term. Um, shoju, shobo, Japanese like um, embracing and sustaining and receiving the true Dharma. Uh, and um, at that time, Queen Srimala said to the Buddha, Having received the Buddha's power, I will now explain the great vow, which is controlled by the principle of true dharma, being truth without error. So uh, this is something that sometimes happens in these Mahayana sutras, is there's a bodhisattva, like Sri Devi, and like kind of empowered by the Buddha's complete Buddhahood, he's like kind of speaking as a Buddha. Maybe a little bit like... Um, uh, what do we call that in, in like, um, in, um, like, um, maybe, um, born again Christian church style. It's like when you're, um, channeling is the word I'm thinking of. Like you're channeling God or, or Jesus or something. You're like, it's actually them speaking through you. Maybe a little bit like that is, um, through the power of the Buddha. And my understanding is that the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara is a bodhisattva, virtually the same as a Buddha, but, but is kind of speaking the Heart Sutra on behalf of the Buddha, empowered by the Buddha's wisdom to speak the Sutra. So that's like this here. And, uh, and the Buddha says, please go for it. You're empowered with Buddha's complete awakening. Um, say it, sister. And Shimala says, the Bodhisattva vows, as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River, are all contained in the one great vow that is called acceptance of true Dharma. Acceptance of true Dharma is truly the great vow. So again, these, all these forms of summarizing and containing, I think it's a, again, a kind of Mahayana Sutra style is to sometimes expand into many, many different practices and sometimes combine them all back into one. Especially Zen stylists combine everything into one. All, uh, all, um, very infinite paths, um, to nirvana are just one road to nirvana. What is that one road? I think Linji said something like that. Uh, one of those ancestors. So here it's like, there's just one vow. Do you remember who that was, Gregory? Uh, yeah, the, the one vehicle can also be translated as the vehicle of oneness. Mm. So, so that's every time we see in this sutra, this condensation of ten to three to one, that's the influence of the one vehicle throughout this sutra. Yep. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, so a theme here is oneness. One vehicle will be a major theme in this, uh, in the sutra. And as, uh, as Gregory says in his introduction to the sutra, um, he feels this is the main 
theme of this sutra is the one, the ekayana, the one vehicle. And here we have the one vow um, called acceptance of true dharma, embracing and sustaining true dharma. And I think we could combine this nicely with what is the what is the um, true dharma here? It is the one vehicle as a main theme of the sutra. It is Buddha nature or Tathagata Garbha, our true nature, our um, unchanging, perfectly complete, um, already thus uh, nature. All, all of these um, ultimate teachings could be considered to be the, the one uh, or the true dharma. And then there's one vow. If we accept this true dharma completely, all other vows are fulfilled. I think that's, that's the point here is that if we, if we truly realize the true dharma, the one vehicle, uh, we will get into all the, I think the second half of the sutra is really going to get into the true, what the true dharma and the wisdom side. And this first half is really emphasizing the kind of merit and vow side, but here's kind of combining it. If we, if we vow to embrace and sustain the true Dharma, this is the one vow that will include all other vows. That's kind of a Zen, Zen flavored statement, I think, too. Uh, so, um, Buddha says, excellent. That's a great way to say it. And, um, and it, what is the acceptance of true Dharma like? Uh, it's like, she says below in these different headings, it's like a great cloud that rains down um, the, um, the meaning of, it says extension of acceptance. I think it's maybe better to say the meaning of vast acceptance or the vast meaning of acceptance of true Dharma is immeasurable. Again, immeasurable. It includes all teachings of the Buddha consisting of 84,000 Dharma gates. Uh, so all the teachings, sometimes it's said the Buddha taught 84,000 teachings. So like Dharma rain, um, all the Buddha's teachings are like rain from this great cloud of true Dharma. Include, so again, it's this all-inclusiveness. This one great cloud is raining all teachings. Like great waters um, that... Uh, from in the beginning of time, these great waters um, formed and um, all uh, um, all land kind of emerged out of the water. It's kind of an unusual understanding, but we could say everything that um, that we can see and know emerged from this water. Similar metaphor as coming from the great cloud and like the great earth, the supporter, the great earth um, uh, is... Uh, supports mountains, oceans, trees and grasses and living beings. So in, in these ways, there's like one, one raining cloud, one ocean giving rise to things, one earth supporting everything. That is how uh, the, um, the true Dharma is. Uh, that's the meaning of the true Dharma. It contains everything else. And, and gives rise to everything else, I think is what it's saying here. Let's see. Did I see I have, did David have something? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if this is directly on point at this at this time, but when you were talking about vows, um, you know, we, you know, like in a Western perspective, you view that as like a verbal statement. And when you were saying it, I was just sort of thinking, what's the connection between vow and practice? And that can you really vow to do something without, like there's a, always a performative practice part of a, a vow is, is that like a reasonable intuition that there's just such a close connection between them? Well, like you say, it's just often a statement in words. It does have that quality. Like, and in fact, that was true for Sri Maladevi. She said them and she enumerated them as a numbered list of statements. Um, but, but we could say even more importantly than the, than the words is the, is the, um, the feeling behind them and the kind of commitment, um, underneath them. They're kind of pointing to a way of being, you know, maybe commitment's another, another word for vow. Um, an intention, a strong, I think it is, vow is an intention, but a very strong intention, um, a kind of unwavering, deep intention, but there is some value in putting it into words and saying it out loud. So that's, we do that in ceremonies. Thank you. Yes. So, um, just a little bit more here. I've got to bug out early. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Um, then um kind of moving through this uh this section a little bit here um uh on the in in number two like the great earth which has four jewel storehouses um in the second paragraph there uh um it said similarly good sons and daughters of the Buddha, there's an, it's just a name for Bodhisattvas, who accept the true Dharma and build the great earth, obtain four kinds of most precious jewels, namely living beings. So living beings are like precious jewels to come across. And who are these four? Those who have not heard the Dharma before and without, and are without the Dharma. Um, in which case, um, the Bodhisattvas can uh present merits and virtuous deeds uh can teach the dharma to them so they can practice merits and and virtuous deeds and um another type of precious jewel is the living beings that are those who want to be shravakas or disciples uh another one is those who want to be prateka buddhas and another is who want to um be bodhisattvas and follow the mahayana so um so all these types of people with different aspirations are great jewels for Bodhisattvas because they can help them um, fulfill their vows. They can try to help them fulfill their vows. And these four types are just ordinary living beings who really haven't heard about the Dharma. And uh, here it's saying the Bodhisattvas can help them just practice giving stuff. They don't even need to hear about emptiness and all that stuff. Ordinary people can just practice virtue and harmlessness and kindness. And then they start opening to the Dharma by doing that. Some want to be these shravakas, which is this term for like, you could say like, like an arhat is another name for it. 
And the Mahayana sometimes pokes at these different kinds of really awesome intentions, but they're, they're not quite, um, as complete as the Bodhisattva vows. This is what the kind of a style you may have heard in a lot of Mahayana sutras to say. Shravakas, I think what's criticized is they just want to, they just want to be enlightened for themselves. They're not really, they're not really in it for everybody. That's the critique. But here, these Shravaka, the people who vow to be Shravakas, disciples of Buddha, are, um, are precious jewels for bodhisattvas and then they can help them accomplish their path because they will help everybody do anything. And likewise, Prateka Buddhas are like self-enlightened ones who like to practice, want to be like Buddhas, but without, um, without a teacher, they want to just do it on their own. And they also like to hang out alone in the forest. And, um, so this is sometimes critiqued by the bodhisattvas saying, y'all should come out and like help everybody else realize what you realized. And, uh, but here, the precious jewels and the bodhisattvas help them if they want to become a Prateka Buddha. Um, and then finally, the most precious jewels here are like are the bodhisattvas, those who want to be bodhisattvas and, and practice the great vehicle path to complete Buddhahood where they can be of the most benefit to everyone. And um, one other nice point here in section number three, uh, and maybe we can end with this one here. This where it says identical with true dharma itself. If you're looking here, this is um, Sri Maladevi speaking. It's a little bit like a Zen koan, I feel like. It's a nice, pithy statement. She's been talking about this acceptance of true dharma, right? And here she says, acceptance of true dharma means the true dharma itself is not different from acceptance of the true dharma. True Dharma itself is identical with acceptance of true Dharma. Isn't that kind of like almost koan-like statement? What is, okay, where we want to practice acceptance of true Dharma, uh, and then we might ask, well, what is, what is the true Dharma? Well, true Dharma is acceptance of true Dharma. <laughs> um, and I think of, um, a little bit in the same spirit, Suzuki Roshi, somewhere in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, it's wisdom which is seeking wisdom. Maybe almost the same thing. Uh, it's wisdom which is seeking wisdom. Uh, so you could also hear this as Buddha nature. Our true nature wants to express itself. And so um, that is the true dharma. Buddha nature, we could say, is the true dharma. It wants to express itself. So by by practicing, accepting the dharma, accepting Buddha nature, embracing and sustaining Buddha nature, that is the work of Buddha nature. Buddha nature wants to be accepted and fully revealed. So if we practice accepting Buddha nature, that's called Buddha nature doing its work. Something like that. You can meditate on that statement of Shimala David. Acceptance of true dharma means the true dharma itself is acceptance of true dharma. Embracing and sustaining Buddha nature is Buddha nature. Accepting, accepting the one vehicle is the one vehicle. Yes, sir. Uh, 
You're not Sarah Crawford. Yeah, it says Sarah Crawford. <laughs> it's Jacob. Um, this is my wife's computer. Um, uh, yeah, that reminds me kind of what you're saying, Shinrai Suzuki. You mentioned him the way he states it. I, um, think, now that I think of it, I think it might have been Reb Anderson that I heard saying in a Dharma talk where he was talking about unenlightenment doesn't include enlightenment, but enlightenment includes enlightenment. Kind ah, of. That's a nice like, it, mm-hmm. like it's all kind of inclusive because it includes everything and encompasses everything. Yeah. yeah. So by its nature, it includes everything and it's not shut off kind of. The practice of including, we could say accepting the true Dharma, we also might phrase that as including including the true Dharma and everything in the true Dharma. That practice of all-inclusiveness is the true Dharma of all-inclusiveness. He's using the idea there. Yeah, I think we could, we could hear it like that too. It's an interesting statement, I think, here. So um, next time I think we can, we can zip through some of these longer sections. Um, and in Eric. Kokyo, uh, I just had a one question, one thing. I just remember that the, the fire of God seeks fire. Is that like oh, yeah. And, and yeah. then also, can you talk about the boomies and how the boomies relate to these bodhisattva precepts? The That's a big topic. Luckily, I can plead um, innocent and say we have to go now. <laughs> but the you know, just in, so people know what you're talking about. The Bhumis are these is a traditional Mahayana thing of these ten stages. Literally, Bhumi means ground. These ten grounds leading up to complete perfect awakening. And as I said, the, the first Bhumi. It's called extreme joy in the bodhisattvas. Directly realize emptiness. And they've also been practicing a lot of giving and so on. They're very joyful and they don't know who they are anymore. That's the beginning of the first bhumi. But, um, and then this sutra doesn't really get into the bhumis, I don't think. But interestingly, um, Prince Shotoku's commentary, he's constantly talking about these bhumis, actually. I wasn't really going to get into it because it's a big topic, but he's, he's kind of like putting, he's making these categories of bodhisattvas before the eighth bhumi. He's also often saying on bhumis, you know, stages one through seven, bodhisattvas are amazing already. But after the eighth bhumi, they're basically like Dharmakaya Buddha. That's the kind of gist of Prince Shotoku's spiel. Yeah, like I, I thought I thought when you when you're talking about the joy, I thought that was the first boomy. That is, that yeah. Is. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, and and just another, you know, it's not really in the sutra, so I think we could have a whole class series on the ten boomies. Be an awesome topic to explore, but the um, but one nice thing to, like, to know about these stages is they're um, you know, developing stages. It's, we de- we kind of de-emphasize stages in Zen. But this is traditional Mahayana has these stages of progression. And they're, they're aligned with the paramitas we were talking about. The six paramitas, giving, um, virtue, patience, diligence, um, meditation, wisdom. And then there's four more paramitas, um, 
uh, vows one of them and power and complete knowing of Buddha and skillful means are the other four bhumis. So um, these ten bhumis are like perfected, completely perfected on these ten bhumis and in the same order. So the giving dana paramita is um, fully perfected on the first bhumi of extreme joy. It's just maybe not a coincidence that the practice of generosity closely aligned with being very joyful. And the other one, like the second one is virtue, you know, Shila Paramita is perfected on the second bhumi, which is called stainless, meaning like it's very pure of any unwholesome conduct. So like that, it's the kind of gist of bhumis, bodhisattva stages to Buddhahood. So again, the entire path is nothing but the paramitas. You don't need anything extra. Thank you. you. May we practice them for all beings um, eternally. And any, any merit, any, you know, maybe we're not extremely joyful right now, but any like even a little bit of open heartedness or um, that comes from the effort we make taking a Dharma class like this. It's, you know, it's, this is called wholesome activity, what we're doing, according to the Buddhas. So maybe there's a little bit of merit. We might, we might feel it. Even if we don't feel it, we can still um, trust that it's here and we can dedicate it to all beings throughout space and time so that can all um, enjoy it with us. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to win them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.